Chapters 41 and 42 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter 41. We levy contributions on the shipping. Scarcely a week went by after the Julia's sailing, when, with the proverbial restlessness of sailors, some of the men began to grow weary of the Calabooza Baratani, and resolved to go boldly among the vessels in the bay, and offered to ship. The thing was tried, but though strongly recommended by the commodore of the beachcombers, in the end they were invariably told by the captains to whom they applied, that they bore an equivocal character ashore, and would not answer. So often were they repulsed, that we pretty nearly gave up all thoughts of leaving the island in this way, and growing domestic again, settled down quietly at Captain Bob's. It was about this time that the whaling ships, which have their regular seasons for cruising, began to arrive at Papatee, and of course their crews frequently visited us. This is customary all over the Pacific. No sailor steps ashore, but he straightway goes to the Calabooza, where he is almost sure to find some poor fellow or other in confinement for desertion, or alleged mutiny, or something of that sort. Sympathy is proffered, and, if need be, tobacco. The latter, however, is most in request. As a solace to the captive, it is invaluable. Having fairly carried the day against both consul and captain, we were objects of even more than ordinary interest to these philanthropists and they always cordially applauded our conduct. Besides, they invariably brought along something in the way of refreshments, occasionally smuggling in a little pisco. Upon one occasion, when there was quite a number present, a calabash was passed round, and a pecuniary collection taken up for our benefit. One day a newcomer proposed that two or three of us should pay him a sly nocturnal visit aboard his ship engaging to send us away well freighted with provisions. This was not a bad idea, nor were we at all backward in acting upon it. Night after night every vessel in the harbor was visited in rotation, the foragers borrowing Captain Bob's canoe for the purpose. As we all took turns at this, two by two, in due course it came to Longost and myself, for the sailors invariably linked us together. In such an enterprise, I somewhat distrusted the doctor, for he was no sailor, and very tall, and a canoe is the most ticklish of navigable things. However, it could not be helped, and so we went. But a word about the canoes before we go any further. Among the society islands, the art of building them, like all native accomplishments, has greatly deteriorated, and they are now the most inelegant, as well as the most insecure, of any in the South Seas. In Cook's time, according to his account, there was at Tahiti a royal fleet of seventeen hundred and twenty large war canoes, handsomely carved and otherwise adorned. At present, those used were quite small, nothing more than logs hollowed out, sharpened at one end, and then launched into the water. To obviate a certain rolling propensity, the Tahitians, like all Polynesians, attached to them what sailors call an outrigger. It consists of a pole floating alongside, parallel to the canoe, and connected with it by a couple of cross sticks, a yard or more in length. Thus equipped, 
the canoe cannot be overturned unless you overcome the buoyancy of the pole or lift it entirely out of the water now captain bob's gig was exceedingly small so small and of such a grotesque shape that the sailors christened it the pill-box and by this appellation it always went in fact it was a sort of sulky meant for a solitary paddler but on an emergency capable of floating two or three the outrigger was a mere switch alternately rising in air and then depressed in the water assuming the command of the expedition upon the strength of my being a sailor i packed the long doctor with a paddle in the bow and then shoving off leaped into the stern thus leaving him to do all the work and reserving to myself the dignified sinecure of steering all would have gone well were it not that my paddler made such clumsy work that the water spattered and showered down upon us without ceasing continuing to ply his tool however quite energetically i thought he would improve after a while and so let him alone but by and by getting wet through with this little storm we were raising and seeing no signs of its clearing off i conjured him in mercy's name to stop short and let me wring myself out upon this he suddenly turned round when the canoe gave a roll the outrigger flew overhead and the next moment came rap on the doctor's skull and we were both in the water fortunately we were just over a ledge of coral not half a fathom under the surface depressing one end of the filled canoe and letting go of it quickly it bounced up and discharged great part of its contents so that we easily bailed out the remainder and again embarked this time my comrade coiled himself away in a very small space and enjoining upon him not to draw a single unnecessary breath i proceeded to urge the canoe along by myself i was astonished at his docility never speaking a word and stirring neither hand nor foot but the secret was he was unable to swim and in case we met with a second mishap there were no more ledges beneath to stand upon drowning's but a shabby way of going out of the world he exclaimed upon my rallying him and i'm not going to be guilty of it at last the ship was at hand and we approached with much caution wishing to avoid being hailed by any one from the quarter-deck dropping silently under her bows we heard a low whistle the signal agreed upon and presently a goodly-sized bag was lowered over to us we cut the line and then paddled away as fast as we could and made the best of our way home here we found the rest waiting impatiently the bag turned out to be well filled with sweet potatoes boiled cubes of salt beef and pork and a famous sailor's pudding what they call duff made of flour and water and of about the consistence of an underdone brick with these delicacies and keen appetites we went out into the moonlight and had a nocturnal picnic chapter forty two motu otu a tahitian casuist the pillbox was sometimes employed for other purposes than that described in the last chapter we sometimes went a pleasuring in it right in the middle of papati harbour is a bright green island one circular grove of waving palms and scarcely a hundred yards across it is of coral formation and all round for many rods out the bay is so shallow that you might wade anywhere down in these waters as transparent as air 
you see coral plants of every hue and shape imaginable antlers tufts of azure waving reeds like stalks of grain and pale green buds and mosses in some places you look through prickly branches down to a snow-white floor of sand sprouting with flinty bulbs and crawling among these are strange shapes some bristling with spikes others clad in shining coats of mail and here and there round forms all spangled with eyes the island is called motu otu and around motu otu have i often paddled of a white moonlit night pausing now and then to admire the marine gardens underneath the place is the private property of the queen who has a residence there a melancholy-looking range of bamboo houses neglected and falling to decay among the trees commanding the harbour as it does her majesty has done all she could to make a fortress of the island the margin has been raised and levelled and built up with a low parapet of hewn blocks of coral behind the parapet are ranged at wide intervals a number of rusty old cannon of all fashions and calibres they are mounted upon lame decrepit-looking carriages ready to sink under the useless burden of bearing them up indeed two or three have given up the ghost altogether and the pieces they sustained lie half buried among their bleaching bones several of the cannon are spiked probably with a view of making them more formidable as they certainly must be to any one undertaking to fire them off. Presented to Pomeroy at various times by captains of British armed ships, these poor old dogs of war, thus toothless and turned out to die, formerly bayed in full pack as the battle-hounds of old England. There was something about Motu Otu that struck my fancy, and I registered a vow to plant my foot upon its soil, notwithstanding an old bare-headed sentry, menaced me in the moonlight with an unsightly musket. As my canoe drew scarcely three inches of water, I could paddle close up to the parapet without grounding, but every time I came near, the old man ran towards me, pushing his piece forward, but never clapping it to his shoulder. Thinking he only meant to frighten me, I at last dashed the canoe right up to the wall, purposing a leap. It was the rashest act of my life for never did coconut come nearer getting demolished than mine did then with the stock of his gun the old warder fetched a tremendous blow which i managed to dodge and then falling back succeeded in paddling out of harm's reach he must have been dumb for never a word did he utter but grinning from ear to ear and with his white cotton robe streaming in the moonlight he looked more like the spook of the island than anything mortal i tried to effect my object by attacking him in the rear but he was all front running about the place as i paddled and presenting his confounded musket wherever i went at last i was obliged to retreat and to this day my vow remains unfulfilled it was a few days after my repulse from before the walls of motu otu that i heard a curious case of casuistry argued between one of the most clever and intelligent natives i ever saw in tahiti a man by the name of arhitu and our learned theban of a doctor it was this whether it was right and lawful for any one being a native to keep the european sabbath in preference to the day set apart as such by the missionaries and so considered by the islanders in general 
it must be known that the missionaries of the good ship Duff, who more than half a century ago established the Tahitian reckoning, came hither by the way of the Cape of Good Hope, and, by thus sailing to the eastward, lost one precious day of their lives all round, getting about that much in advance of Greenwich time. For this reason, vessels coming round Cape Horn, as they most all do nowadays, find it Sunday in Tahiti, when, according to their own view of the matter, it ought to be Saturday. But as it won't do to alter the log, the sailors keep their Sabbath, and the islanders theirs. This confusion perplexes the poor natives mightily, and it is to no purpose that you endeavor to explain so incomprehensible a phenomenon. I once saw a worthy old missionary essay to shed some light on the subject, and though I understood but few of the words employed, I could easily get at the meaning of his illustrations. They were something like the following. Here, says he, you see this circle, describing a large one on the ground with a stick. Very good. Now you see this spot here, marking a point in the perimeter. Well, this is Baratani, England. And I'm going to sail around to Tahiti. Here I go then, following the circle round. And there goes the sun, snatching up another stick and commissioning a bandy-legged native to travel round with it in a contrary direction. Now then we are both off and going away from each other, and here you see I have arrived at Tahiti, making a sudden stop. And look now where bandy-legs is. But the crowd strenuously maintained that bandy-legs ought to be somewhere above them in the atmosphere, for it was a traditionary fact that the people from the duff came ashore when the sun was high overhead. And here the old gentleman, being a very good sort of man, doubtless, but no astronomer, was obliged to give up. Arhitu, the casuist alluded to, though a member of the church, and extremely conscientious about what Sabbath he kept, was more liberal in other matters. Learning that I was something of a meconery, in this sense a man able to read and cunning in the use of a pen, he desired the slight favor of my forging for him a set of papers, for which he said he would be much obliged and give me a good dinner of roast pig and Indian turnip in the bargain. Now Arhitu was one of those who board the shipping for their washing, and the competition being very great, the proudest chiefs not disdaining to solicit custom in person, though the work is done by their dependents, he had decided upon a course suggested by a knowing sailor, a friend of his. He wished to have manufactured a set of certificates purporting to come from certain man-of-war and merchant captains known to have visited the island, recommending him as one of the best getters-up of fine linen in all Polynesia. At this time Arhitu had known me but two hours, and as he made the proposition very coolly, I thought it rather presumptuous and told him so. But as it was quite impossible to convey a hint that there was a slight impropriety in the thing, I did not resent the insult, but simply declined. End of chapters 41 and 42 Recording by Tricia G.